You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, this is Evan. I wanted to tell you about a little something before the show starts. We know that a lot of journalists listen to the Longform podcast, and we wanted to let you know about a program called Microloans for Journalists. It's at microloansforjournalists.org. This is something started by reporters at ProPublica, former reporters from ProPublica, and other volunteers. It's a very simple program. If you are a journalist who has been furloughed from your job, laid off from your job, had your salary cut or your pay cut, you can go to this website, you can get an emergency $500 loan, no interest, pay it back in one year. If on the other hand, you're someone who feels like you're in a solid spot, you have some money that you can contribute, you can also go to the site, you can pledge to give part or whole of one of those loans, you can choose later on whether you want to forgive that loan or get paid back. This is not something that is a paid advertisement on this show. It's something we came across through other reporters, through people who have been on the show. And we feel fortunate that we were able to contribute and we wanted to let you know about it. So if you are in need or you feel like you can give, then please go to microloansforjournalists.org. If you're not a journalist, you can still support good reporting. You can go to your local newspaper and subscribe. You can become a member of your favorite online news outlet. You can subscribe to a magazine. Good reporting is more important than ever in this particular time. Thank you. And here's the show. Hello from locations all over the place. It's the long form podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. Also on the line, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. How's everybody feeling? How are your feelings, guys? Weekly check-in. Uh, like four out of 10. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Four out of 10. I think, you know what? Grand scheme of things, I think I'll take that. Four out of 10. On the show this week, I talked to Naomi Klein. Um, this was set up before uh, COVID, but it ended up being uh, quite timely um, because she wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine, which is largely about how uh, radical changes uh, take place in the face of disasters throughout history. Uh, so that was a great starting point for this conversation. She also has a new book out about climate change. And if you were alive in the late 90s, you probably remember she had a book out called No Logo. 
Naomi Klein. I'm glad we got her on the show finally. Well done. Very, very timely. Uh, I have a shout out, you guys. I have a quick uh, quick thank you. It's been nice in this time to hear from listeners. I feel like we're, we've been getting a lot of notes from people. People appreciate that we're putting out the show. And uh, I got this real nice note this week uh, from a woman named Megan who used the show and uh, the way that we do interviews in a presentation at work. She did a PowerPoint about us. And I thought I thought that was uh, neat. Presumably presented virtually to the rest yeah, of her yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, but anyway, that was nice, Megan. It was, uh, it was nice for you to send that along. Thank you. And thanks for all the notes that you guys have been sending. Uh, we appreciate them. I have a shout out for myself. Can I <laughs> shout myself out? <laughs> Always. You may recall that uh, for a period I was uh, hosting a Bitcoin podcast with former long-form podcast guest Jay Kang. We decided uh, that we were both so anxious that we should start doing it again. It's not really about Bitcoin anymore. It's just about whatever we're thinking about. But it still has a weird Bitcoin name, Cointalk. Check it out. It's in app stores everywhere. The Cointalk superfans were very excited last week when the feed lit up. I uh, I know that one of Max's employees listened, and uh, I sh- uh, uh, without doxing him, shout outs to him. <laughs> yeah. Number one fan. Number one fan, that guy. Um, if you are trying to cultivate number one fans all over the world, the way to do it is with an email newsletter. MailChimp makes it easy. They support this show. We thank them for it. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Naomi Klein. Hey, Naomi, how's it going? All right. How about you? I'm uh, increasingly uh, not sure how to respond to that question, but uh, I'll just, I guess, start by um, what what are you up to during this period? What is your life like? I am living in New Jersey. I've been living here for less than two years. I moved from Canada two years ago. I was born in Canada, grew up in Canada. I have American parents, but I haven't lived in the United States before. So I joked when I took this job, I teach at Rutgers, I have this really, it was a great job. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I joked when I took the job that, you know, as a journalist, we run to burning buildings. And that's what it felt like to come to the US under the Trump presidency. (laughs) And that feels like less of a joke now. Um, I I think the main thing I feel honestly is homesick because it's been really scary being at the center of this pandemic because where we're living in New Jersey is one of the hardest hit parts of the country. And, and this is the first time I've lived somewhere without universal public health care. And, and we actually thought we had it, had, um, the coronavirus, my husband and I, because we came in contact with somebody who tested positive when they they stayed at our house and then got sick a few days later. And they were in Canada when they got sick. And so they were able to get a test. And by that point, we were both sick. We were both had symptoms, but we weren't able to get a test. So we assumed that we had a minor case of it. So it was particularly scary to be sick and not know that we'd be able to get you know decent care. But we're both feeling better now and I feel 100% better. So that's really good. What's your relationship to the news during a period like this? It's interesting. We have a seven-year-old and 
I'm really conscious. He's very sensitive and he picks up on things he overhears if I have the news playing. He's always asking me questions like if I tell him he can't do something, he'll say like, is this because of the pandemic or is this just like all the time I can't do it? Or is it, it's like, and it's like everything. It's like ice cream, like everything is about the pandemic, you know? So I'm really conscious of not wanting him to be exposed to just ambient panic inducing news. So I'm reading as much as I can. I like to be watching more news. I guess my relationship to news is very conflicted. I'm trying to be more deliberate about it in terms of like, I'm trying to like find ways to consume news that is not on a screen, um, like printing stuff out, going outside, reading it. I don't know why, but I really feel like one of the things, the terrible things that's happening now is this is a very strange kind of disaster, right? Where um, you wrote, you've written about disasters. I mean, you spent kind of like a decade of your life thinking and writing about this. Um, I have spent a lot of time with disasters and moments where like suddenly we lose everything, right? Like, and usually, honestly, that includes electricity, right? Like that include like if a whole economy shuts down after a hurricane, electricity is one of the things that goes. Water is one of the things that goes. Puerto Rico didn't have either of those things uh, for a long time after Maria and I reported from there. The weird thing about this disaster is that we have distraction in abundance, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, there are all these things that we don't have, but we're swimming in Netflix and social media and podcasts and all of these distractions that are sort of pulling us into a world of make-believe. And I just feel very conscious of that and worried about it in a way, because I feel like this is a moment to confront reality in as unvarnished a way as we possibly can, if we can, to the extent that we can. Which doesn't mean like don't watch a TV show ever, but I am worried by this idea that we're going to kind of Netflix our way through this quarantine <laughs> period. It doesn't seem like the thing we should be doing in this moment. Well, the flip side to the uh, perpetual Netflix is there's this um, draw of the up to the minute news cycle that for me actually has been more captivating than Netflix. This is the first period where mm. I'm like, I can't even sit through Netflix because I'm on my phone, like pull refreshing while I feel like I don't get any deeper into the story, I guess. It feels like we're in a suspended animation of a kind. Yeah. And I, and I do think that that's a big challenge because this is a seismic shift and I don't think we want to be in that sort of just constant refresh mode because that doesn't leave room for really grasping like the depths of this shift. And I think like one of the things I find fascinating is just, I find the New York Times fascinating right now because like the physical New York Times, right? Um, which I only get on the weekends, but I do feel like the physical object of it is really interesting. I, could, I doubt there's ever been a greater sort of gulf cultural gulf between the front section and the rest of the paper. Like it feels so weird because the front section is just like freebasing the rawest news you can possibly consume. Right. And it's a whole lot of reality of just like people dying and frontline workers, unprotected 
doing the most unbelievable labor to keep people alive to, you know, we all know what the news is right now, right? And then, and then you go inside the paper and it's just like, why are they still publishing a travel section, right? Like, what is that, you know? Or all of this sort of lifestyle reporting, which is turning quarantining into a like cool, like just metabolizing this crisis into something that is not as shocking as it should be, right? Like celebrities, like quarantine regimes and and what are we baking in quarantine and just like, just all these ways that we're trying to normalize this. And I just find it fascinating, like the difference between the front section and the rest of the paper right now. Well, I thought you were going to say, and um, I haven't actually been getting the print. It's uh, sitting uh, in Brooklyn, piling up. Sorry to my neighbors. Uh, but there's never been a time where a three-day-old newspaper looks older. Usually, like, by the middle of the next day, like, a few times I, my internet has gone down and my app won't refresh. And one-day-old stories in the Times app, you can tell instantly that they're extremely dated. Like, there's such an inflow of new information coming in, like, 12-hour chunks that, like... I did see a print that I think was eight days old and it was the furthest gulf in my entire life of, of eight days. Yeah. I mean, it's like a dispatch from another era, all of it. I mean, lots of people have said this, but like just people, the way people touch on television commercials and things like that. It's fascinating. But I do find watching Trump's briefings amazing. Like I really if I can find a time when my son isn't watching and we're, it's not, you know, right before bed, I find him to be a truly bizarre, like, I mean, he's always been bizarre, but I feel like the implications, right, that for the first time there is a reality show star as a head of state, right? And that's always been a really big deal, right? Yes. Um, and but I think in this moment, it is such a big deal, right? Because you see Trump trying to like willfully bend reality, which is what he's always believed he can do. And the truth is, he's been right for a lot of his life that he and this is what it takes to be a really successful reality show star is you learn how to mold reality like a script, right? But if you look at Trump as a businessman, that's always been what he's understood is that so much of life is a show. You know, when his casinos were going bankrupt and his bankers were about to, you know, call in all of his loans, he put on a show for them where he came out like Rocky and like busted through paper, right? And he was like the comeback kid. And all the stuff, the things he did with WWE, like, he understands the extent to which like capitalism is just a confidence game, is just about projecting a certain thing. And he plays with the stock market. And this is why he always has his press conferences now on Sunday nights, because he's trying to like play a confidence game with Wall Street, right? Mm -hmm. To project enough confidence. And you've got to hand it to him that he is he has figured this out about our world, that if you perform a certain thing enough, people will believe you, right? If you just say everything is great, I've made America great again, a lot of people will believe you. But the thing about the moment that we're in is that he's just under this 
avalanche of reality. And he's like melting or something. Like this virus is the first thing he's ever encountered that he hasn't been able to mold to his will. It's just too real for him to like shape as if it's a reality show. And that is, I think, making him go bonkers in whole new ways that are, you know, just terrifying to watch, but certainly like sociologically interesting. With Trump and the sort of nightly press conferences, Trump himself, pretty horrifying. I think we're auditioning for a future where it's sort of expected almost uh, that everyone's on camera in that way. And I would imagine sort of the first great political challenger to what's happening within Trumpism will probably also be uh, someone who has a certain reality show-esque affect to the way they present themselves. Like what Trump like happened into by talking directly at the camera a lot is, is sort of a native way of life to most young Americans. Yeah, and yet his appeal is not with young Americans. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. And th that's what's been weird politically over the past few years is that these guys from another era who don't perform at all really and don't seem to understand any of this have captured the hearts of the young people steeped in this culture who want an escape from it. I mean, that's what's been what's so interesting about Bernie Sanders' appeal among young voters. And it is a huge appeal. And we're talking on the day he suspended his campaign. But, you know, I think there are lots of ways of analyzing why Sanders lost. But the extent to which this is an, a generational divide in, within the Democratic Party, I, th I think, is the biggest rift. It crosses all ethnic lines and class lines. I mean, you're probably right that probably be will be somebody who's able to play in this game. And, but I do think it's sort of interesting that, that young people have been reaching for somebody who is outside of it, I think, in part because they know how insidious it is. I mean, it was particularly interesting to watch how young people just were repelled by Pete Buttigieg, right? <laughs> yeah. um, somebody of their, you know, of their generation, because they, they could see that he was performing or they felt he was performing at any rate. Hey everybody, it's Max. I want to put Naomi and Aaron on hold for a second because we have a new sponsor. Literati and uh, Literati really is like the perfect thing or just a very, very good thing uh, for this incredibly chaotic moment we're living through. Literati is a subscription book club for your kids. So they'll send five books based on your kid's age. The books are on a theme to your house. You can check them out. If you like them, you keep them. If you don't like them, you send them back. But the thing that's kind of special about it, in addition to like the books being great, is there's like a personalized note for your kid. There's stickers that they can put on the books that say like property of whatever their name is. Uh, and we got it last week, our first shipment from Literati. And my kid lit up, like genuinely lit up. He was psyched to get a package with his name on it. He was psyched to look through the books. He liked them all. We're keeping them all. His favorite was Sheepdog and Sheep Sheep by Eric Barclay. Uh, and when you send the books back that you don't want to keep, you can also donate books 
from your house and Literati will gift wrap them and send them to young readers who need support. Uh, so, you know, it's a way to also donate your books. So if you've got kids at home, I really recommend it. Check it out, literati.com. And if you go to literati.com slash longform, you'll get 25% off your first two orders. It's their best offer available anywhere. To get it, you have to go to literati.com slash longform, and you'll get 25% off those first two orders. Again, literati.com slash longform. Do something for your kid. I mean, you're doing like everything for your kid right now, but uh, what's one more thing? Literati.com. Thanks to them very much for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Aaron and Naomi. You came of uh, age as a writer pretty young and were someone who was sort of writing to people within your own generation. What's it like sort of going back and revisiting youth movement like the Bernie Sanders movement now that you are uh, not of that generation anymore? I mean, the Sanders campaign, like it's the first political campaign I've ever officially been a part of. You know, I wrote articles saying, you know, I think this candidate is the best candidate. You know, I've done that sort of writing before. I did for Bernie in 2016. But this electoral cycle, I did something I've never done before, which is actually act as a campaign surrogate. I went on the road to four states with the campaign and really immersed myself in it. And I mean, young people powered the campaign, there's no doubt, but it was very much a multi-generational movement. I find it really heartening hanging around with young people and writing about the generational shift that I see from my generation as a Gen Xer and in terms of what we thought was possible and how tightly the bounds of political discourse were policed, you know, when, when I was growing up in the 90s. I mean, I love how unconstrained and free people in their 20s and, and even early 30s, people who kind of came of political age post-2007 financial crisis. And I think that it's not just that they have came of age with capitalism collapsing all around them and then the climate crisis calling into question the idea of the future, but it's also like, I think the biggest difference is that the economic project that you know we call neoliberalism, the Reagan-Thatcher political project that is the only political project I've ever known, you know, as a sort of conscious human being, you know, that was a very much like an ideological and communication project, right? Like I got, and I think you did too, the hard sell, like the ideological hard sell of, you know, there is no alternative, history is ended, you know, this, we are entering this era of no borders that is going to lead to the best possible outcomes for the most number of people and anything else is unimaginable and unthinkable. And there is something incredibly suspicious about collective action and the public sphere and all of that. Like that was a very, very aggressive communication project that I was grew up immersed in and and yes pushed against but still was shaped by and I think my horizons were limited by 
And I think that the biggest difference that this generation has from ours, or one of them, is that ideologically, neoliberalism has gotten lazy. The policies still continue and you still get the same austerity and the same you know, cutbacks and public education and healthcare, and you, they get it a lot worse on those fronts. But they don't get the war of ideas in the same way that I think we got. And so they are just more free to say like, well, let's try democratic socialism, you know, um, let's have a universal basic income. Let's, let's have homes for all. And all these ideas that would have just been like, you can't say that, like, you know, like let's nationalize the airlines while we bail them out. Like the number of young people who feel free championing very, very bold policies, like that is the biggest difference, I think, from, yes, as somebody who was writing about anti-corporate activism in the 1990s, you know, which is what I was writing about in No Logo. It was so tame and so careful compared to what these young people are demanding. So for you, you just had a book out. Does this like change where you're going with your writing uh, over the next couple of years? Like, do you have a roadmap set out of like, I'm going to publish this Green New Deal book, then I'm going to do this? (laughs) Or are you just kind of month-to-month free-floating? So as I mentioned, I have a (laughs) seven-year-old. We are in lockdown. It's funny. A friend of mine called me like very urgently the other day with an idea for a book that I should write very, very quickly right now uh, relating to the pandemic and, and the Sanders campaign. And this friend of mine does not have kids. Um, I have, and as I said, I have a seven-year-old. He's a special needs child. He's not low maintenance. He's wonderful, but not low maintenance. And so I, I just basically was like, well, why don't you write the book? (laughs) And I think that all writers without kids need to be especially productive in this moment because writers with small children in quarantine with them and homeschooling them maybe you're going to be a little less productive. (laughs) And frankly, like the last thing I want to do to my extremely stressed little family right now is announce that mommy's writing another (laughs) book. (laughs) Because, you know, it actually asks a hell of a lot of people, the people around you when you decide to write a book. Like I would be happy right now to write a long article. I have a word file that I've had open called notes on the pandemic that is now 5,000 words, but not shaped into an article. And I'm hoping that I will shape it into something that is useful in the next couple of weeks. But, you know, I've, I've written three books that each took me five years to write. No logo, the shock doctrine, and this changes everything. They were seven years between them, each of them. And it took five years to research and write them. And then I kind of went out on the road with each of them and talked a lot about them. And I wouldn't say like I had a map, but I definitely felt that each of those books, they were building on each other. And I could sort of trace a line, like how I got to the shock doctrine from No Logo and how I got to This Changes Everything from the shock doctrine. But ever since then, I think that the books that I've been putting out are more responding to unforeseen events and trying to give people more immediate tools. The the book that you mentioned on fire is building on, on the work that I did to write This Changes Everything about the climate crisis, which is really a call for a Green New Deal. 
But in this moment where we were finally actually talking about it as a real possibility after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez passed the resolution and the Sunrise Movement took off, and then during the Democratic primary, you had several candidates that embraced the idea. I thought that having a book that brought together shorter writing that I had done and, and included some new writing, I mean, that book's mostly a collection. It's about one third new. You know, it was an attempt to give people some, you know, accessible intellectual ammunition in the battle to win a Green New Deal, you know. So I guess I, for me, there's a distinction between those three very, very, very intensely researched, you know, 70 pages of endnotes, big idea books, and these sort of shorter books that are more kind of in the push and pull of politics and and trying to arm people with some easy to use ideas. And, and partly it's because those books are big. Those books are long. And, you know, I have been writing for more than books for a little more than 20 years now. And I have noticed that people's attention spans are, are shorter. And, you know, those books last like it's unfortunately the shock doctrine continues. To, it seems to be the most useful book I've written. And it's come up a hell of a lot since the coronavirus took over all of our lives because disaster capitalism doesn't seem to go out of style. I wish that book would become compost. But I mean, what I find is that, you know, that investment of those years in order to have a really heavily researched reference book, it does contribute to the longevity. There's no doubt. But if you're in a moment where you're just trying to beat Trump, you know, or trying to get a Green New Deal, it's also useful to give people some things that are a little bit shorter. Because like I said, I have noticed a shift where <laughs> people, I just know, like you can tell as a writer whether people bought your book or whether they read your book. And I really feel like- <laughs> Or didn't buy your book, but told you they did. <laughs> <laughs> With this shock doctrine, a lot of people actually read that book. With This Changes Everything, I got the distinct impression that a lot of people read the introduction and more, a lot of students who were assigned the book read the book. But, it, <laughs> but when I would do book signings with This Changes Everything, there was this shift that happened where, where young people would wait in line to get their book signed. And then they would say to me, like, I read your book. Here, here's a sticker. And it was very different than like with the shock type would be like, I read your book and, and this is what I think. And then, you know, and this, I've, I've read lots of other books and this is how it compares. Whereas this change happened where it was like, people were like, I actually read the entire book and they really wanted me to know. And I, and I thought like, wow, like reading entire books now is becoming a lot more remarkable for people. And it's true for me too. Like I, I read fewer books cover to cover, right? And so that kind of changes, I think, of like, I don't know, am I only going to put out like 600-page books for the rest of my life? Maybe maybe some will be shorter and a little bit more accessible than that. Does that make you want to push past the book as a whole and sort of take this stuff to podcasts? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you have a video up on The Intercept about coronavirus. Like, how much does the format even matter to you? I think it matters a lot. Like, I think the kind of like organized thinking and, you know, the work that you as an author put into a book, in my experience, there is a direct relationship between that and whether the book has lasting value. But like I said, like there are moments when there isn't time 
to absent yourself for a couple of years while you get your thoughts together. Like things are just a little too urgent for that. And frankly, that's the way I felt. And for the past, you know, really for the past four years. And I think part of that for me is the last big book that I wrote was about the climate crisis. This changes everything. Since then, I've been writing shorter books and that are like more about intervening in the political moment. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, once you really immerse yourself in the climate science and really wrap your head around just how little time we have to get our shit together, in my experience, it does get harder to just be like, you know what, I'm taking like four years off this whole thing and I'm just going to try to like, you know, see what I come up with. It's made me want to stay in the mix more because I feel very, very in touch with how important these years are. And I think it's not just the climate crisis. It's also I'm terrified of what a second term for Trump looks like. And maybe all this is an elaborate excuse not to do the hard work that writing another big book requires. But like I feel changed by the research that I did that allowed me to write This Changes Everything. And ever since then, I haven't been able to disappear in the way that I used to disappear. For the shock doctrine, I lived in the woods for four years in like a very remote part of British Columbia that you can only get to by ferry or float plane. I said no to absolutely everything. And I did probably the best work of my life to write the shock doctrine. On a personal level, I would love to be able to do that again. But on a like political and existential level, it hasn't felt like the right thing for me to do. What do you make of this idea that's making the rounds? I don't even know who to attribute it to that. What we're experiencing right now with COVID is the story of climate change uh, playing on a extremely compressed timeline, sort of going from denialism to, Oh my God, I think it's already too late already to, Oh, we have no government and societal infrastructure to deal with something like this. We don't know how to make decisions about things like this. I'm curious how you react to that as someone who's been really immersed in this story. I definitely think there are some, there are a lot of intersections with the climate crisis, to be honest. I mean, in addition to what you're describing, including, you know, the same people who call climate change a hoax, called this a hoax. Yes. But this same kind of war on science, the war on objective reality, you know, it, yeah, there's, of course, it's the same. And the same sort of failed state responses, you know, we saw, frankly, going back to Hurricane Katrina hitting New Orleans and FEMA not being able to find it for five days. Like this is not the first time that people have woken up and realized that the United States is not a functional state. It's the first time it's happened on a national level to everybody in the country together. But it certainly isn't news to people in New Orleans and it isn't news to people in Detroit and it isn't news to people in Puerto Rico. You know, they've been living this. A friend of mine in Puerto Rico texted me she said, I feel like the United States is having its Hurricane Maria moment where they realize like there's nobody coming. There's nobody that is looking after you. And there's also the fact that the driver of climate disruption is one of the main drivers is the combustion of fossil fuels. And that is part of what is making this 
pandemic so deadly for African Americans in the United States. You know, we are now learning that the death rates from the coronavirus are much higher among African Americans. And part of the reason is that there are so many underlying health conditions in those communities. And a big part of the reason for that is that those communities have been treated like sacrifice zones by the fossil fuel sector. All the dirty industries are in their communities, in their backyards. And that leads to all kinds of respiratory illnesses. Also, you know, there are other illnesses that are intersecting like diabetes, hypertension, but air pollution is one of them, right? And so, and then this is why the shock doctrine keeps coming up. The Trump administration is using this crisis to roll back all of these EPA regulations that protect air quality, albeit doing a very bad job of it in lots of communities. So all of that said, I feel like one of the important things that we're seeing is that actually our governments can do a hell of a lot if they want to, if they really recognize that something is an emergency. You know, and I start on fire talking about Greta Thunberg and her the personal crisis that she went through when she understood the reality of climate change and looking around her and seeing that all of the adults in charge were not treating it as an emergency when it so clearly was and that the house was on fire and that they weren't putting it out. And so she has spent the past couple of years going around the world begging political leaders to act like we are in an emergency. And they have responded by making YouTube videos of Greta Thunberg asking them to treat the climate crisis like it's an emergency and patting her on the head. And, you know, except for Trump, of course, but, you know, all over Europe and lots of Democratic leaders have congratulated her and for these speeches. But what they have not and some of them have passed resolutions saying climate change is an emergency. <laughs> but what they haven't done is actually treat it like an emergency. And I think before this pandemic, that idea was a fairly abstract one for most people. Like, what would it mean to treat the climate crisis like an emergency? And what we're getting a taste of is there's a whole lot of things that we could be doing in terms of regulating the polluting industries right now, which are, you know, many of, there's no very few planes in the sky right now. No, it is possible to stop these industries. This isn't the way we want it to stop them, but it is possible to stop them. It is possible to say to factories, okay, you're not going to be making cars right now. You're making ventilators. We could say you're not going to be making cars right now. You're going to be making solar panels now. I mean, there's all kinds of things we could be doing that we're not doing. And so I think, frankly, the best thing to come out of this would be if we were to stay on emergency footing even after we come out of this pandemic. And the way we try to get our economies to a healthy place is with something like the Green New Deal. You know, when I was touring with On Fire and this fall and talking to people about the precedent of the original New Deal and how it shows actually that we can do big things, that we can do ambitious things, that we can change a whole lot of things at the same time as FDR did in the 1930s. And then, of course, during the war effort, the biggest pushback that I got from journalists, but also, you know, audience members is Americans will never embrace that kind of change when the economy is booming. And, 
you know, to be honest with you, that was the pushback that I had the hardest time dealing with, you know, and coming up with an answer for, you know, I, you know, there's always something you can say like, well, sure, the stock market's booming, but huge numbers of Americans are hurting and work is more precarious. And there's all kinds of reasons to change our economy. It's incredibly unequal and so on. But the truth is the truth that the New Deal happened during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. It didn't happen when all traditional economic indicators were good. And so it's possible, actually, that, you know, we have a better chance for that kind of a stimulus in the aftermath of this crisis. Obviously, that's not going to be under Trump, but, you know, it is an election year. What do you do with that feeling? Like, I mean, I guess I'll just admit, like, you know, the more I spend time with people who really know about climate change, the more Mm -hmm. I think a reasonable inference is that it is already too late. And we could debate that in its own way. But I guess like, I wonder like how you sort of process dark thoughts of that kind and process the fact that like your research might lead you to a conclusion that is not only not optimistic, but is maybe like mono narrative. I mean, I try to be really honest about the future that we're talking about. It is not rosy. It is not about stopping climate disruption. We are headed towards an incredibly rocky future. And what I think we are experiencing right now in the United States during this pandemic is that if you have not invested in the infrastructure of care, if you have allowed the profit motive to govern your entire healthcare system, if you are allowing people to work at sub-living standard wages with no basic protections, including the ability to call in sick, all of that is going to make it so much worse. These are the underlying conditions that made this so lethal in the United States. And so, you know, when I talk to people about why we need a Green New Deal, like why we need a response to the climate crisis that includes universal public health care and child care and housing for all and all the rest of it. I'm very honest. And I say the future is rocky. We are going to be facing disasters. We are going to be facing a future of serial shocks. We need to get our emissions down to zero as quickly as we can so that the temperature doesn't increase to truly unlivable levels. But even if we do everything right, we're not stopping climate change. We are dealing with a very rocky future. We're dealing with mass migration. We are dealing with more humans living together on less land. And so it matters all the more that we have humane social policies that allow people to have the basics taken care of Because that is going to really determine whether or not we navigate those shocks with any kind of humanity and grace. So, you know, when people ask me, like, are you optimistic? I'm like, how do you know we can do this? I always say, I have no idea whether we can do this. Rather, I say, I have no idea whether we will do this. All I know is that there is a slim chance, a very slim chance, that we could make things a lot better than if we do nothing and just let it burn, right? And the stakes of that are so high that I'm not going to spend my time trying to figure out 
whether our chances are good or not. I'm just going to try to enlarge those chances. And so we started this conversation with me telling you I'm homesick for Canada. It makes a really big goddamn difference whether or not you have a universal public health care system, whether or not you have invested in it and it stays functional in the midst of a crisis or whether the whole thing collapses because you know the people are outbidding each other for the price of you know masks and ventilators and the entire supply chain has been privatized and handed over to corporations to profiteer you know Canada is far from perfect and it has not invested enough in its public health care system but it makes a really really big difference And it makes a big difference in how people behave, you know, that sort of hoarding instinct that is so strong. It's rational in this country to act as if nobody is going to take care of you and that it is up to you to just take care of your own family and just do everything you can to keep them safe, even if that means like cleaning out the grocery store for everybody else, because nobody is taking care of you, right? But There are things that we can do with policy that will give people a greater sense of security so that they can behave less like assholes when crises hit. All right, this is my last question. In all the research you did uh, for the shock doctrine, you studied um, all sorts of disasters uh, throughout American and world history. What was your favorite disaster to read about? What was a disaster that you feel like is instructive Hold on, I'm just going to let the dog in. Hold on. Sorry, she gets very determined when she feels left out. This is my dog named Smoke. She's a cockapoo. She's named after British Columbia's wildfires two summers ago. Another classic disaster. (laughs) Yes, another classic. And um, yes, I wrote an essay about it called Summer of Smoke. And then I got a a little fluffy dog and named her Smoke. She's my disaster comfort dog. Now she's happy. So if you hear sounds, that's her looking at me. But yeah, and um, I'd say that the disaster that taught me the most personally was the 2001 economic crisis in Argentina. At the end of 2001, Argentina's economy went into free fall. They locked people out of their own bank accounts because there was such a strong run on the banks. And we moved there. My... Uh, my partner, Avi, and I, and we made a film about what happened next because in the sort of rubble of that failed economic system, there were some amazing experiments in participatory democracy and economic democracy. So we made this film called The Take about workers who were fired because their factories went bankrupt and they were all told to go home and that they didn't have jobs anymore and that the machines that they'd worked on for their entire adult life were going to be auctioned off for parts to pay back creditors. And in a couple hundred factories in Argentina, the workers just refused these terms and they unfired themselves, broke into their old factories, and uh, in some cases chained themselves to the machines and said, we're going to turn them into cooperatives because we're creditors. These companies owe us money. And so we made a film following three different factories that were turned into cooperatives. And so I wouldn't say it's my favorite disaster, (laughs) but it's certainly the disaster that taught me about how people can do incredible things when everything falls apart. And living in Argentina 
in that period over a couple of years taught me about the the political history of neoliberalism, of the, the economic project that is collapsing all around us and how it had come to Argentina in the 1970s, as they say, with blood and fire after the brutal military coup and amidst enormous torture and disappearances of dissidents. And I mean, as a sort of naive, you know, I was I was a lefty, but I honestly, you know, I'd written No Logo, which is, you know, about some bad things that happen under capitalism, like sweatshops and environmental pollution. But having friends who had been tortured for their political beliefs, meeting people, you know, whose parents had been disappeared and thrown out of helicopters, taught me a hell of a lot about capitalism. And that was really important to my own political evolution. Naomi, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. And you stay well. You too. That was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, Thanks very much to Naomi Klein for coming on during a weird time. Uh, Thank you very much to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Marina Clementi, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, the people who bring you this show, MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks for all of the very kind notes that we've been getting. Oh, you can always send those to us, uh, podcast at longform.org. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.